We're glad to be sharing the ministry of Tabernacle of Praise with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. Good morning. Good to have you with us, Susie. Okay, well, he's with my son, and that tells a lot. <laughs> okay, I'm sure he'll at least show up for church. <clears throat> We're continuing our series on uh, becoming what God created us to be. Reading from Matthew chapter 7 this morning, uh, verses 7 through 14. Very, very familiar passage of Scripture. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone, or most everybody, or a few people, that asketh receiveth. No, everyone that asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if ye son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, he will give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give them good things that ask him? Therefore, all things... Some things, a few things, a couple things, no, all things, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye at the straight gate, wide as the gate, broad as the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, but few there be that find it. We talked a lot last week about potential, and to possess potential without a godly purpose in your life will ultimately lead you to destruction. Uh, this is seen graphically in the 11th chapter of Genesis when the people of Nimrod started to build the Tower of Babel. And God said, Behold, they are one people, and they shall have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And now nothing they have imagined they can do will be impossible for them. So God wasn't against the tower. God was against the goal of the tower. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they wanted to circumvent the judgment of God. So when God saw their commitment and knew that they had the potential, that nothing was impossible to them, God did not remove their potential. But what he did was confounded their language and now they had a communication issue that became a problem for them. God has never diminished the potential of humanity, not even in the fall. Our problem has been one of communications. 
the number one problem in marital issues is husbands and wives who fail to communicate. The number one family issue between brothers and sisters is that they stop communicating. There's problems in the church because we don't communicate. Parents fail their children because they fail to communicate. We talk, but we don't communicate. Uh, how often have you been in a conversation where when the other person was talking, you were thinking of what you were going to say instead of really listening to what they were saying? God placed limitations on human life after the fall. After the flood, God reduced the number of years that man could live. Uh, one of the greatest frustrations of life is to be given a responsibility without being communicated to of what really that responsibility is. Have you ever worked for somebody who had an expectation but never defined what that expectation was and were constantly on your back about failing to meet his expectations or their expectations, although they had never communicated them to you? God never does that. God always communicates clearly what our responsibilities are and what his expectations are from our life. One of the things that I think is obvious in our culture is that mankind can accomplish a tremendous amount of progress without God and God's input. We see this every day in our world. We see the progress of technology. We see the progress of human sciences. Think of what kind of world we could really have if it was God-centered and academia and technology and uh, medicine. Everyone was in communication with God and, and operating under the purview of his will and his purpose in their life. The things that lie behind you, the issues of your past, and what lies before you and ahead of you in your future are insignificant compared to what lies inside of you, of what your potential and capabilities are. God himself has paid the highest price possible to give us the potential to realize and to recover our potential that was lost in the fall. The cross was about total salvation. It was about the redemption of it didn't just redeem our souls, which that is huge. But God redeemed the whole man. 
Now, we are spiritually reborn. He that is born of water and spirit, that which is born of spirit is spirit, that's what is born of flesh is flesh. Our spirits have been restored, and we're just waiting for our physical bodies to catch up. That's what Paul meant when he said, All creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, to wit the redemption of our bodies. We're just waiting for our humanity, our flesh, our physical factors to catch up with us spiritually. Maslow is considered the father of modern psychology. In Maslow's principle of psychology, he taught that the immediate needs become the controlling factor of mankind that the first instinct of us is to find shelter, the second instinct is to find food, and the third instinct is to find security and perfection. Once these three things are met, only then can we find self-realization or self-actualization. But the teaching of Jesus Christ challenged everything that Maslow taught. Man at his highest potential lives at a much deeper level than what his basic needs are. The greatest needs that you and I have are not physical, they're spiritual. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to believe and trust in God's goodness and God's care. That's why he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. All your other base needs will be met. All the needs of self-realization and self-actualization will be given to you. Now, in the setting of Matthew, Jesus was talking to his disciples, not the multitudes. Anytime you're reading the New Testament and you're reading a discourse by Jesus, you need to frame the reference of who he's talking to. Is he talking to the general populace, the crowds? Or is he talking specifically to his disciples? In the seven prophetic perils of Matthew 13, the Bible says in the first four, he went down by the seashore and taught the people. The last three of the parables, the Bible said he went into the house and he taught those parables just to his disciples. So there's some things that Jesus taught is not for the entire world. Uh, but he told them to his disciples because discipleship proves its faithfulness through their sacrifice and through their allegiance to God and his word. Jesus chose 12 that they would be with him, not just followers of him, but be with him. You're chosen for a different dimension of relationship with God. You are chosen for a relationship 
not just to follow him, but to be with him. We understand that the 12 were in on things that the general Jewish populace never observed and never were a part of. And then there were three that were in on a couple of events that the other nine were not a part of. Jesus said, look at the birds. Look at the grass of the field. Look at the flowers. See God's care and provision over them, how, how, how God takes care and sees after their needs. And he said, how much more precious are you than the flora and the fauna and the animal kingdom of the world? What Jesus was saying, don't sweat stuff. Just don't sweat stuff. Live in kingdom problems. One of the problems, one of the main problems that I see in people trying to develop a Christian lifestyle is they bring so much of the world past the cross and into the kingdom of God. And anytime you bring things from that outside world into the church, you don't enhance the church, you diminish the church. Anytime you bring those concepts past the cross into your life, you do not add to your life, you diminish your life. There's a passage in Isaiah I love. It says, where the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. The reason there's so much chaos in our world, there's so much, so much chaos in our nation, is because we have come out from under the government of God. The greater the government of God there is in your life, the more righteousness there'll be in your life, and the more peace there'll be in your life. Peace increases as God's government increases. The better your life is ordered by kingdom concepts and kingdom principles. You've heard me say it often. When you walk through that door, you leave democracy, you leave a politics, you leave American tradition outside. It doesn't belong in here. When you come past that door, you come into the kingdom, and now you're under the domain of a king. And the scripture says, where the word of a king is, there is power. Jesus contradicted most of the psychological theories because God doesn't start with our wants. He starts with who we are. And why does he do that? Because in Maslow's world, what you have is the measure of what you are. So man in that world is driven by things. But if you come into the kingdom, Jesus said, who you are has nothing to do with what you have. You don't need things to enjoy life. You need life to enjoy things. And that's the problem where the world gets the cart before the horse. Life is paramount, not things. That's why Jesus said, I have come 
that you might have life. Not things, but life. And that more abundantly. What that tells me is, is before Jesus arrived, man only existed. He didn't have life. It is impossible to have life if Jesus Christ is not a part of your life. It's impossible. Because life cannot rise above the source of that life. It's like water seeks, it seeks the lowest level. If life is connected to things, then the highest prospect of your life will be things. And you have to look at things to be the answer to all of the needs that you have in your life. Life will never be any more secure to you than the things are to you. I want you to get that. Your life will never be more important to you than the things that you have in your life. But if God is your source, then life has the potential of the highest that we are capable of of living in our life. I talked last week about everything that we see in our physical world was first in God. All the stars, all the planets, all the trees, all the fish, all the animals, everything we see in the visible universe first started in God. He called it out of himself. In God, there is not only everything I need, but there is exceedingly abundantly above what I can ask or think, Ephesians 3.20. So, too many of us are so caught up in trying to make it through life that we don't have the time to live life. We're so busy making time, making a life that we have no time to live it. And this is the world living backwards. And we can fall in the church in that same trap. What we try to achieve in things with driving ambition are normal accruements of the provisions of God if we seek Him first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. When our lives are connected with God, when you live and breathe and find God as your resource, only then can God's power and God's nature flow through your life and empower you to accomplish what potential God has placed in your life. And that raises the bar of what you can be. Now, there's two Old Testament characters, Joseph and Daniel. You know, they never went to Sunday school. They never spoke in tongues. They never had the Holy Ghost. But 
they excelled in difficult times and in tragic circumstances. How? It was because of their relationship with the king of the kingdom. Because, I mean, David said in the Psalms that he gives me more understanding than my teachers and more wisdom than the ancients. There are literally things, if you walk with God, I'm telling you that in your career that has nothing to do with biblical principles, God will instinctively let you resolve and solve problems and bring answers to you simply through that revelatory knowledge if you're connected with Him. I know this to be true. I was an average engineer until I got in the church. And once I got in the church, things just began to unfold in my mind and my ability instinctively. Instinctively, I knew things that I really didn't know. Faith is not something that is spooky. It's not the prerogative of mystical people. It's simply knowing that everything that is just isn't necessarily seen. That what we lack exists in God. And if we manifest the faith, we can call it out of God into, into our visible lives that we can become aware and see it. When we see a problem, you don't see the whole story. We get overwhelmed by the problems and the circumstances of life. When you only see the problem, you're seeing what is temporary. But Moses endured as seeing him who was invisible. That made all the difference of where Israel was going to live and who was going to govern their lives. I was given a per Persian rug. Actually, I loaned a guy who was an engineer, a software engineer for Lockheed. I loaned him a considerable amount of money. He come to a place he couldn't pay me back, so he had this Persian rug known as a gnome. And uh, he told me it was worth $3,000. I don't know whether it was or not. I still have it. I don't know. It's beautiful. It's exquisite on the front side. But you turn it over on the back, and it is confused and muddled and disoriented. That rug is, is a parable about our lives. We often see life from the backside. We see it from the confusing side. On God's side of it, it's an exquisite, beautiful, symmetrical Pharaoh was visible. Egypt was visible. The brick kilns were visible. God was invisible. The promised land was invisible. But what became a reality in the lives of Moses and the children of Israel 
the cities, the crops, the wells were not visible. Did the visible world define their destiny or did the invisible world define their destiny? We have to understand as Christians that the visible world does not define much for us. But in the invisible world of God is the definition and the reality of our lives. Amen. We, 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 we spend so much time and effort trying to possess what is temporary and often at the expense of the eternal. God knows how serious you are as a Christian by where you spend the predominant amount of your time. If you spend the predominant amount of your time seeking what is temporal, or whether you spend a predominant amount of your time trying to obtain that which is spiritual, God is pregnant with everything that we want and vision in this world and in the lives of our families and in the lives of those that we are connected to that are not saved. Everything that isn't visible yet, including a lot of things that you're praying for. But the question is, are you connected? The children of Israel saw the acts of God. Moses understood his ways. There is a deeper level of Christianity that God offers to you. It's not just seeing what he's done, but it's understanding God's ways. It's knowing why God does what he does. It is seeing beyond the visible into the invisible. Mark 11 said, Whatsoever things ye desire, ateo, is the Greek word. It isn't what we dream about, but that word means what we crave enough to sacrifice for. Anything that is achievable in life is only achieved by discipline and by hunger and by craving. You have to hunger. You have to thirst after righteousness. In other words, your daily Bible study, your daily prayer life, your daily communication with God has to matter to you more than your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner. Has to matter more to you than the kind of clothes you wear, the kind of shoes you wear, the kind of things that you will do throughout the day. You have to hunger for it. You have to crave for it. Our world is filled with advertisements. Our lives are crowded daily with distractions. And you have to understand that there is so much competition, especially in the time that we live, for your attention. Things that are trying to grab your attention and get you to tune them in and focus on them. And if you aren't captured by the desire of hungering and thirsting after his righteousness, the world can easily distract you from what's vital and what's important.
Uh, I've been on a quest. I've usually read through the Bible annually. I started out trying to read the Bible, going through it once every 30 days. And I found out that reading 40 chapters a day requires a, a level of attention that I no longer possess. So I've cut it down to 20 chapters a day, and I can get through the Bible in 60 days. Many things appeal for our attention. The devil wants to be sure to give you something to pursue that is beneath your purpose. Sadly, Matthew 7, 14 says, Few there be that find it. These words as a pastor have been the secret to my sanity. Pastor Don and I was talking just before service about you see things in people and you see them struggle and struggle and struggle and struggle and you understand you know what's wrong but they just can't seem to see the forest for the trees. There is a vast disparity of the individual hunger for God even within this own body, this own church. As a, as, as a, as a pastor and as a leader, you want it for everybody. You want everybody to be on the same page. You want everybody to be at the same level of hunger. Everybody at the same level of thirst. Everybody at the same level of passion for the worship and for the progress and growth of the church. But Jesus said, only few will find it. My encouragement to you today is to be one of the few. You can be one of the few. Live the kind of life that we read about those who present the best in biographical sketches in Scripture. Be a monument in other people's lives of how to serve God and how to walk with God. I don't want a tombstone needed in my life as a reminder that I once lived. I want to leave a legacy behind me. Honestly, what road are we on today? as a body and as an individual. Are we on a broad road or are we on a narrow path? Are we going somewhere or are we, are we like Israel, 40 years in the wilderness going in circles? 
40 years on their way to nowhere. The destination you're on is your choice. And only you can make it. We sometimes think we need somebody else's affirmation to be things in God. You already have God's affirmation. You don't need mine or Pastor Don's or anybody's. And neither me nor Pastor Don can stop you and inhibit where you walk with God. Narrow is the way. One of the things I found that Christianity was never attractive to me because I thought it was the most illogical thing I'd ever heard in my life. But once I began to study the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus, I found more rationale. Paul said this one thing I do. Not this 199 things I dabble in, but this one thing I do. Fritz Chrysler was a concert violinist, considered by many probably one of the greatest that ever played. He said, if you went one day without practice, the master knew it. If you went three days without practice, he knew it. If you went seven days without practice, everybody knew it. Destiny for many of us is outside these walls. And it's being determined by the choices that we will make today in our spiritual lives. If only a few of us live a totally connected life, we have to make a determination that I'm going to be one of the few. I'm going to be one of the few. I'm making up my mind today. I'm going to be one of the few. If I could just somehow get you to see that deep, deep wells of possibility live inside of you. More of you is unseen than has ever been seen. There is more that you're capable of than you have ever done, that I have ever done. More than you can ever ask or think or imagine. You have to see yourself operating on a spiritual level than you have ever operated on before in your life. What are you capable of imagining or thinking in your spiritual life? Can you see yourself as a Daniel or as a David or as a Joseph or as a Paul? Can you see yourself? Because you see, if you and I can put up the faith, God can put up the answer. Isn't it past time in all of our spiritual lives that by faith we begin to operate in the unseen
to bring out of God what can only be seen by faith. Things that we desire, things that we want, things that better our world, that better our family members, that better our friends. Sometimes somebody besides Moses needs to see God the invisible. Somebody in our generation needs to stand up and be a Moses and look into the invisible and see what God has for his people. I have determined that in my life, I'm going to have greater faith in my latter years than I ever had in the earlier years of my life. I know this. There's absolutely no problem with having too much faith. I've known a lot of people that had too much stuff, too much money, too, much, too many things. When you get a stuff, when you get things, you just get something else you have to take care of and manage. And you spend all your time managing and taking care of stuff. Let me ask you this. Can you take a promise of God too seriously? Can you? Is there really a problem with taking God just at his word? Just to really think that he meant this when he said it. Jacob's prayer when Esau was approaching. Now understand, Jacob was a skunk. He was a liar. He was a cheater. He was a deceiver. And he didn't stop when he got into Laban's house. He was still a lying skunk cheater when he knelt by the Jabbok and prayed to God. Now, how does a low-life skunk get the attention of God? This was Jacob's prayer. You said it, God. I didn't say, You said it, that I will surely do thee good and not evil all the days of your life. That's what you said to me, God. Now, here comes Esau. You know what? One of the things a husband hates is for his wife to quote something he said in the middle of an argument. And what a wife hates is for a husband to quote something she said in the middle of an argument. But God loves to be quoted regardless of the circumstance. God loves somebody that takes him at his word. You know, one of the thoughts occurred to me is that David, maybe you need to not so much read the word as believe it, embrace it, and speak it. 
I remember early in my spiritual life, as I've told you, there was a Choctaw Indian in our church. The night I received the Holy Ghost, he come up to me and said, what are you doing at 5.30 in the morning? I said, I'm going to be in bed because I don't get off till 11 o'clock at night. He said, well, you're going to change your schedule at 5.30. You're going to be here at church in the morning praying with me. And that became a pattern of my life. But as a young convert, you don't know what to say. You run out of things to say to God in 30 seconds. So I started bringing my Bible to prayer meeting with me, and I began to pray the Word. And it was amazing to me how much I grew in God just by praying His Word back to Him. Now, He knows what it is, but He needs to know, do I know what it is? The disciples had fished all night long and caught nothing. Now, I don't know about the others on the boat, but at least Peter, James, and John, they knew that late like the back of their hand. They're like a guide on a lake. They know where all the honey holes are. I don't think they had a GPS on their boat that could put them over the spot, but they knew where they were. And there's nothing that I can think of that they didn't know every spot they fished, every honey hole they knew and caught nothing. And here is this guy who grew up in a carpenter shop that probably never fished a day in his life. They come up to him and told him, cast your net on the other side. They said, Master, we've told all night and we've taken nothing. But nevertheless, at thy word, if you're going to walk with God, there has to be a nevertheless in your life. God, I have expended all that I know how to pray, all the ways that I know how to ask. I have tried to fulfill every little qualification that I think might be attached to a promise to bring it to pass. And it's nothing. God likes to start with nothing best. He really does. That's what he started with creation. Nothing. And Elijah was praying on the mount. And he told his servant, go look and see. Because he told Ahab, get thee up. For the, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. And so Gehazi went and looked Saw nothing. Nothing. God likes to work with nothing best. So you have to have when nothing is happening, when nothing is progressing in your life, when you keep coming up with nothing, your response ought to be nevertheless at thy word.
if ever a generation needed disciples who had a nevertheless faith, it is our generation. It's the one we're living in. Steve and I were was talking before service, and, you know, the America we grew up in, it'll never be recovered. It'll never be recovered. It's too far gone. If serving this generation is beneath you, then any leadership you may grasp is beyond you. If serving is beneath you, then anything else is beyond you. We're in this generation. Esther was positioned, Mordecai said, for such a time as this. And we are positioned in our world for such a time as this. It's time that we took him at his word. Amen. For more information about Tabernacle of Praise, look us up online at tabernaclepraise.org. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with our Facebook page. We also have a free app that you can use to keep up with events or be notified of bad weather. And you can listen to our sermons directly from the app. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed day.